everybody. Welcome back to the Blackware Intelligence Podcast. Hope you're all doing well. Before we get into the show, let me tell you a little bit about our sponsor, FTX US. FTX US, one of the largest crypto companies in the United States, is the safest, most regulated way to buy and sell Bitcoin, Ethereum, and other digital assets. With FTX, you can trade crypto with up to 85% lower fees than top competitors. There are no fixed minimum fees, no ACH transaction fees, and no withdrawal fees. FTX has also recently announced their stocks beta rolling out to U.S. customers to enable crypto, stocks, and NFT trading in one interface. This includes hundreds of U.S. exchange-listed securities, including common stocks and ETFs, and an integrated experience within the existing FTX U.S. cryptocurrency trading application. Use promo code BLOCKWARE1 or go to ftx.blockwareintelligence.com to earn free crypto on every trade over $10. Again, that's Blockware one or go to ftx.blockwareintelligence.com to get started today. Now let's get into the show. Hey everybody, welcome back to the Blockware Intelligence Podcast. Today I have a very special guest for you, Samson Mao. Samson, thank you so much for uh, coming on during this crazy time. We've got no shortage of, of things to talk about, I feel like, and this has been probably the craziest time since I've gotten involved in the space. So we, we appreciate you coming on the show. Yeah, thanks for inviting me, Will. It's great to be here. Before we kind of get into the weeds, maybe for anyone who lives under a rock, you just walk us through kind of your background from a high level, um, some things that you've done in the space and kind of where you are now. Sure. So um, I'm a game developer by trade. I'm working on an MMO game called Infinite Fleet. And then I also was previously the COO at BTC China. It was one of the biggest exchanges in mining pools back in the day, like in the early 2013 to 15 era. And then um, I got into Blockstream as the CSO, Chief Strategy Officer. And I worked there for about five years with Dr. Adam Back. Um, building out the liquid sidechain, launching a number of products and services. Um, uh, and I helped uh, Blockstream pivot into mining too. And then after that five-year stint, I decided to um, start my own thing, which is Jan3, um, which is a Bitcoin technology company. We're going to be operating the Aqua wallet. It's a um, Bitcoin and liquid wallet. And we have a couple other projects underway. And it's uh, planned to be working with the government of El Salvador on building software and digital infrastructure for the country and Bitcoin City. That's awesome. Could you maybe expand a bit more on that? I don't know if you have some stuff that's in the pipeline that you can't talk about yet, but um, this is honestly something I haven't heard a whole lot about. So maybe you could expand a little bit for us. Yeah, so I guess um, uh, the connection started with the Bitcoin law. So Jack Mallers was in El Salvador and he introduced me to President Bukele and the team there. And then we started discussing a number of topics, Bitcoin cold storage, Bitcoin security, and so on. And in, in the course of that, um, with my team, I proposed that they do a Bitcoin bond. So that was a meme that was floating around on Twitter because they have volcanoes and they can do volcano mining. And then I think um, Max Kaiser and Alistair Milne, they floated this concept, like do a Bitcoin bond to fund the volcano mining. So that was a, something that people were talking about, but no one had actually formulated what that would actually look like. So uh, working with my team, we put together a plan, like what could this be structured as? And we proposed that to the president and his team. And they decided to go with um, 
the the formulation that is out there right now, which is um, a one billion dollar bond with a six and a half percent coupon, and half of it going into um, Bitcoin mining and geothermal energy plants, and then half of it going into acquiring a half billion strategic Bitcoin position. So that's just waiting on the the law to pass that would allow them to issue a security. Um, and there was a there were lots of issues with gang violence in El Salvador, and they're dealing with that. But now they're focusing back on the economy. So hopefully that will come out soon. But um, yeah, that led me to building that relationship with the, the team there and the, the government there. And Jan3 has a MOU signed with them to build out digital infrastructure. So some of the first projects that we want to be working on are uh, the uh, immigration platform for Bitcoin City. So there is a plan to put forth a raft of 52 or 53 laws. Um, in that raft is including the digital securities laws would, that would allow them to do the volcano bond, but also in there would be immigration and citizenship reform. So my thinking is uh, it'd be critical for this platform to be user-friendly, accessible, but most of all secure because you're gonna have Bitcoiners trying to immigrate or apply for citizenship and they're going to be uploading documents and everything like that. And I think it's really important that uh, that is a very secure system and platform. So it's still early, but um, those are some of the things that we're working on right now. Uh, that's super cool. And is this is this the um, what you had just raised around for like two months ago? I saw like some headline that you is was this the same thing? Yeah, that's yeah, Jan3. Okay. So Got we it. raised about 21 million. Wow. Congrats, man. That's awesome. Thanks. One thing you mentioned was the, the Bitcoin bond. Uh, I've seen like a mix of different reasons why it didn't get passed. Maybe you could just clarify some things. Like I've seen floating around on Twitter that part of it was just the general market conditions. They felt like they couldn't raise as much as maybe they could have in different market conditions. Is that true or there's such like a small factor? Well, I believe um, the Minister of Finance, Minister Zalea, he did mention that in some press conference that he had. And he said um, there's a delay because of market conditions. And I think that was more alluding to the, the war, the Russia-Ukraine war that had just broken up. Basically, we, we've had tons of, um, you know, crazy things happening over the past, what, like three months? Yeah, it's <laughs> and the craziest year of my uh, short life, man. <laughs> yeah, um, but uh, I think that was what he was alluding to. So it, it's just like there are a lot of things going on. There, There is pension reform that they're working on as well that's been long overdue. So that kind of took precedence over the, the you know, Bitcoin related raft of laws. Then the, they had to deal with the rising gas prices and trying to lower the prices for their people. And then they had the gang violence. So it's just been nonstop, like crazy things happening all along. And I think now the focus is going back to that. So I know that there are discussions happening around the law and um, I think hopefully final revisions to it. And then they'll put it forward to Congress. And then if it gets voted in, then we'll start to see more progress on the bonds. But you know, the timing might be tricky now because uh, you know, there's just been implosion after implosion in the quote unquote crypto space. Right. Yeah, for sure. We're going to dive into that most definitely. Uh, but I just want to wrap up on this, this point of El Salvador. You know, you've, you've had your boots on the ground there and you've experienced a lot of things firsthand. Can you kind of walk us through What's been the impact on the community there, um, both from, you know, hearing a lot of things about, you know, tourism coming in and that drawing capital into the country, businesses wanting to come 
uh, set up shop there, even though if that's kind of, you know, in the early innings of, of taking place. And then as well, what's been the effect on the native population in terms of the actual like usage of Bitcoin? Yeah, so the, I would say, okay, let's start from the, the end part. So what's the impact? I think the impact is still limited. Um, there's a lot of installs of the Chiba wallet. That's the government Bitcoin wallet. Um, and I think the, a lot of those installs were driven by the incentivized um, you know, $30 that you get when you install and sign up. Um, there were a lot of technical issues too at launch. Um, basically, the wallet didn't work that well for Lightning. So it was only really good for Bitcoin deposits and converting to dollars. But um, since then, they've improved uh, a lot. I think they brought in Alpha Point, then the wallet's being fixed up and Lightning functions perfectly now. So I've seen like, I've been to some stores in the past that didn't, they, they would have a sign saying we accept Bitcoin and we accept Chivo, but when you actually try to use it, they'll say, actually, um, it's not functioning right now, so we're not taking it. But then on recent trips, I went back, they're, they're taking it now. So I think it's um, technical glitches that cause some slowdown in wider adoption, but these things are being worked out. But um, your other point about tourism, tourism's up like 30%, right? And they've had double-digit GDP growth. So overall, I would say this Bitcoin strategy has been good for El Salvador. Now, there has been a ton of criticism about the president, and you see mainstream media saying he's gambling with the nation's money and he's losing money, but you know he's just stacking sats and he hasn't sold. So it's not a loss because he's not selling. And also, I think their investment in Bitcoin is about 40 million-ish. And uh, Minister Zlea has said that's like, 0.5% of their annual budget. So it's not like it's going to crush them, but much like media likes to do, it's always sensationalized. Like, you know, El Salvador is down massively on their Bitcoin. Of course. Yeah, of course. Um, can you talk us through as well, this, this Bitcoin city? I've, I've been seeing all these pictures. I mean, it looks sick. I just like haven't, at least, you know, maybe haven't seen any podcasts talking about, you know, expanding further on like what the city is going to be made up of, what's the timeline, I guess you could just walk us through from like a high level, what, what's going on there. Right, so I think um, the latest information we got were, were those images or the the scale model that I think you're, you're referring to that it looks pretty awesome, right? and they, they did it all in gold too, which is a nice touch, but um uh, I don't know if there's a specific timeline. Building the entire city is probably going to take, uh, you know, a decade or or around that, right? Because building a city is non-trivial, especially the scope that they want to build at, which is really it's it's intended to be a, a large city with its own airport. There's got to be a geothermal plant nearby to supply power to the city, but there's a, overall there's a lot going on there, and I don't think that's going to be happening overnight. But from my perspective, I like to look at Bitcoin City more as a special economic region. So you could go there and set up a company and you'll have those tax benefits and incentives to, to you know, domicile your business there. And just um, for the record, like Jan 3, we actually are incorporated in El Salvador too. It's just, it's not the, um, it's not under the Bitcoin City jurisdiction yet, but um, from discussions with the law firm that helped us set up, we can re-domicile that to Bitcoin City once it is ready. But we just set up under the pre-existing structure right, right now in El Salvador. But yeah, like, I think Bitcoin City, it's easier to contextualize it as a special economic region first, rather than a place with buildings, because that's going to come later. Sure. No, that, that makes total sense. And 
I'm assuming as well, there'll be special kind of uh, privileges or, or maybe, um, you know, friendly state towards, towards Bitcoin, obviously, if it's called Bitcoin city, are you, are you aware of maybe any of the specifics? I'm assuming maybe there's like tax reductions on, you know, no capital gains tax, maybe on Bitcoin, all some things like that, or. Yeah, well, the based on the presentation that the president did, it's uh, zero tax on everything. So no cap gains tax, no property tax, uh, no payroll tax, and the only tax is a, a VAT tax, VAT tax. So you only pay for consumption, like on things you consume. Oh, that's sick. I, I had no idea. That, that's really cool. Um, awesome. Well, let's go ahead and like dive into the to the super fun stuff. This week has been a a wild week of insolvencies and blowups and contagion and all kinds of all kinds of different things in in the space. So um, first, I want to start with the obvious thing, which has been price action. And you know, you've been in the space for a very long time. You know, you're you're one of the one of the OGs that you know I respect the most. And uh, you know, I wanted to hear from you. What are your what are your takes on on kind of the current price action that we're seeing? Obviously, you're a long term Bitcoin investor, but just you know, kind of weighing these current market conditions up against some of these historical bear markets and, and drawdowns that you've been through? Yeah, so I don't think this drawdown is as uh, large as some of the ones we've seen in the past. And I guess it depends on your perspective, but I think I think 20K-ish is probably the lowest we go. I've some, seen some people calling for lower, like touching uh, prior year highs or even lower than that, but... I think the ecosystem has developed to a point where it's not going to take that far of a hit. And even at the current levels now at like uh, 20 something K, I, I think we're already oversold and everyone that has sold has probably already sold. So we, we kind of know what, what happened now. And by the time the, you know, the general populace finds out about it, it's probably the damage that's already done. Right. So I would say, I, this is not investment advice. I think we're in the clear now and we're going to climb back up. But then I've also seen takes that uh, the, the entire macro environment is shit and uh, we're going to go lower, like stocks are going to go lower and everything's going to go blood red and uh, maybe even depression, right? So uh, it depends on your view, but uh, I would say Bitcoin has to eventually decouple from all the all these things right because bitcoin is not a stock it's not a tech stock so there's no reason it should track a tech stock it's tracking right now because there's a lot of wall street and trader money in bitcoin and their sentiment is directly impacting the price um where the price is depressed now too because of all the DeFi blowups so i would i would attribute that to contagion right um all of these uh companies are gambling on DeFi projects and building on top of uh, investing tokens on top of tokens and lending and borrowing on these tokens that are not really, in my view, worth anything is what is causing all, all of these problems. But they're forced to liquidate their liquid assets, right? So they're selling their, their Bitcoin or selling Ethereum because these things are easy to dispose of and they can meet their margin costs with this. Um, they're not going to sell you know, harder to move things like NFTs or or even the um, the shittier shitcoin tokens, right? Like, I don't know, I don't want to name anything, but, you know, sure. pick your random coin. It's probably not very liquid and there's no buyer for that, right? If you try to dump its size. So they're selling the valuable stuff first. Not that I think ETH is valuable, but, you know, it's more valuable than some of the other junk. 
But um, yeah, so Bitcoin obviously is the most valuable. They're going to dump that one first. So we're taking a hit. And if, if you watch the charts, actually, you can see ETH is dropping harder than Bitcoin because you know there's there's more ETH floating around and it's more disposable. Like they want to get rid of that ETH before they get rid of their Bitcoin. So that's why I would say the ETH BTC chart is dropping so hard. Um, the other thing too is uh, people are looking at the, the Fed and what they're doing with the, the rate hikes and quantitative tightening and everything like that. But I don't think that should apply to Bitcoin because Bitcoin is a global money. It should not be dependent on what the Fed says or what they do. So I think we just need a bit of time and we'll see a decoupling. And I've, I've seen a couple magazines talk about it and a couple of people like Hot or Not have talked about it on Twitter too. But in my view, the decoupling is where we start to break with all of these things. And that's when you see Bitcoin is not a risk on asset. It does not have anything to do with tech stock and it has nothing to do with monetary policy of one country. Yeah, said a lot there. I kind of want to kind of want to break it down a little bit. Um, the first one is just like I wanted to comment on what you kind of said about Bitcoin's correlation with the Nasdaq. You know, I think like a lot of people have been saying it. You know, on mainstream media, that, you know, Bitcoin is an inflation hedge, but you know, Bitcoin was the best performing thing. A, you know, since you know the last ten years, but since you know the Fed inserted a massive amount of liquidity in 2020, and it still is up on a on a relative basis, relative to all those, you know, other uh, asset classes, or if you want to look even at different subsectors of, of stocks, um, you know, I think this, this drawdown and, and people have been mistaking it for Bitcoin being a, a you know, risk on asset. It's, in my opinion, it's really just been like a complete uh, correlation to everything going on, you know, with just liquidity coming out of the system. You've got the number of monetary units is decreasing and, and you know, everything is, is, drawing down in, in, in tandem and correlations are going to one because as you said people are selling things you know that that they have to sell and, and not things that they want to sell necessarily um another thing you had mentioned kind of going off the correlation and perhaps you know maybe seeing like a quote-unquote decoupling you know i think like you have to wonder and you kind of alluded to this when you come down 70 80 percent you know the, the people that are buying btc down here um, you know, th these are strongly convicted individuals that understand the real value proposition of it. And they're not just buying Bitcoin because it's going up. Right. And so like, I think the volatility of Bitcoin allows it to go on the, you know, these, these massive runups are only possible because of these massive drawdowns, because what happens is like the supply gets concentrated into those who are strongly convicted, runs up, you get some dispersion into individuals who aren't you know, goes into alts, et cetera. And then that, that cycle, you know, compresses back into Bitcoin and it starts all over again. And so, yeah, I mean, I think, um, I think what you're saying makes a lot of sense. And, you know, you have to wonder, you know, who are the individuals that are buying down 70, 80%? It's, it's not going to be people who are viewing Bitcoin as a, as a tech stock. Yeah. I mean, Michael Saylor is not going to stop buying, right? Like in, in the next year, he's going to keep buying when he, when MicroStrategy has money. And I think personally, he's going to keep buying too. Um, we're going to see you know, more people that understand or need Bitcoin buying Bitcoin as well. We're going to see more nation states adopt Bitcoin. Like the, the adoption curve is not slowing down, right? And the need for Bitcoin in this macro environment and geopolitical environment is not diminished as well, right? There's another thing that has to do with the Russian-Ukraine war, which is the destruction of the US dollar as, or the, the whole reserve currency system, right? It's basically been 
dissolve like it doesn't work anymore because if you go to war with anyone holding your currency they're going to freeze your money and it's not your money so i believe on a nation state level they're going to get this they're going to understand this lesson of you know not your money not your money right it's a, a permutation of not your keys not your coins but if it's not in your own custody then it's not yours sure and i don't believe that's been fully realized yet because it if that was fully realized, we'd probably be sitting at 100K plus right now, and we'd have a number of nation states with Bitcoin on their balance sheet. So I think we just have to wait some time and let the let the cards fall. Like Even this might sound um, blasphemous to Bitcoiners, but even gold has not seen a spike. And I would think with the, the dissolution of the reserve currency system, gold should be pumping too, but it's not. So I think we're just, uh, we haven't seen everything fully play out just yet. Sure. How do you think through kind of the quote unquote, you know, dominoes falling or like game theory of Bitcoin nation state adoption? Where do you think, I mean, I thought it was really cool to see this recent uh, like central banker meeting in El Salvador. And so all these people that are essentially getting orange pilled, how do you kind of like think through how that process might perhaps play out? I remember, you know, seeing your segment, uh, with the individual, I I forget exactly who she, I think she was some someone high up in the government. I just don't want to misquote it from from Mexico. I remember at the Bitcoin conference, like just you know being in your being in your shoes. How do you kind of like think through that process playing out moving forward? Well, the I guess um, since the Central African Republic is that second big domino, right? It's a nation state, not a city or autonomous region that's adopting Bitcoin, and we just need a couple more. And I think. The, the dominoes will really start to fall because they'll start to understand the earlier they are to accumulate Bitcoin, the better off they will be. And if they want to have some nation state mining strategy, like El Salvador is planning with their volcano bond, then now is the best time to do it, right? Um, if you look at all the um, the dominant mining companies, right? They didn't just, they didn't start in, in the bull market when Bitcoin was at 60K. They started early. Right, Blockstream started in 2017 after I joined, and Bitcoin was like uh, around a thousand then, and you know not many people were that interested in mining. We had not seen that mass exodus of, uh, or I guess not well exodus of, from China, but that would happen later. But we hadn't seen a mass um, piling in of miners trying to get to North America, right? So when I found our first uh, supply of power in in Quebec for blockstream mining, it was uh, still pretty cheap. And slowly when Bitcoin started rising, that was when everyone started looking for more cheap power you know, in North America, in Canada and the US. And that was actually driving up um, you know, prices in terms of uh, rentals on land or leases on land or facilities because the landowners or facility owners understand like if you're coming to do mining, you're going to be making money. So I want more. And also electrical costs would be pushed up too because the demand is so high. So there was a, even a moratorium on power in Quebec because there were so many miners going there after I had gone and secured our power that they, they didn't want to give out any more power. But the best time to start any of these things is when Bitcoin is down and when the mainstream media says Bitcoin is dead. So I guess the game theory is maybe the Central African Republic would want to start now. And if they did start now, this would be a better time than when Bitcoin hits 100K. Yeah, for sure. I think like the beautiful thing about Bitcoin adoption from like a nation state level is 
like the game theory is kind of such in that, and I kind of hate throwing that term around. I guess the domino effect is such that like the people that need it most adopt it first and the people that need it the least end up being on the back half of the adoption curve. And like, that's, that's really cool. You've never had a financial system bootstrapped in that, in that kind of way. Yeah. Um, let's move on to, uh, I want to talk about tether. So obviously we, we always get the tether fund whenever we come down in price. Um, and, and recently there's been a lot of people talking about, uh, kind of the lack of transparency around tether or they, you know, are they, exposed to some of these counterparties that we've seen kind of blowing out over the last few days. How do you kind of think through and evaluate maybe for people who aren't familiar um, the risk of, of Tether and especially how it, you know, compares to uh, in the sense of its backing to like a UST, which we saw completely blow out? Well, let's start there. So uh, USDT or Tether is completely different than UST, right? So UST is a algo stablecoin or algorithmic stablecoin, and the the plan there is that you're relying on a price feed and some kind of complex mechanism to maintain a dollar peg. And unfortunately for UST or Terra or whatever they call it, it's bound to uh, Luna, right? And Luna is a shitcoin. So it, you have a shitcoin minted out of thin air that they are ascribing value to and trying to use it as a mechanism to balance a dollar peg. But at the end of the day, it's still a shitcoin that you printed out of thin air. So it's never going to sustain itself and hold value. So the whole thing was doomed from the beginning. If you look carefully, right? Like it's the, the mechanism doesn't work. So they had to shore up capital externally with the, the Luna Foundation Guard or LFG to get money to defend the peg whenever the peg is broken. So it's just the, the classic DeFi complexity mechanism that looks kind of decentralized, but it's not, right? You have an actual group of people managing and rebalancing just like a central bank. And USDT, on the other hand, is it's still, it's a reserve-backed stablecoin like all the other ones like USDC, uh, you know, PAX, uh, dollar, et cetera, et cetera. But they actually have dollars in the bank in... Um, in uh, uh, T-bills and in uh, other things like commercial paper or dollar equivalents. So there is actually backing to that dollar. So when while UST can have a run and um, it can de-peg, and this is a point that the mainstream media got wrong constantly, USDT cannot lose its peg unless the user of USDT cannot redeem from Tether. Like they can't send in the USDT and get back a dollar in a bank wire. That is the peg. So on certain marketplaces, the price can be driven down because these are open markets with you know limited pools to supply on different exchanges. So if someone is dumping on, say, Kraken, they, they can push the market price of USDT down a bit. But that means it's an opportunity for anyone that understands it because they'll just buy dollars at 95 cents go to Tether the next day when the banks are open. That's the other thing too. The, the price cannot stabilize instantly because the peg is maintained with the bank and through bank withdrawal. So you have to wait until the bank opens and then they'll send you your money, right? So the next day, everyone that bought dollars for 95 cents went to the bank, went to Tether and got a bank wire for a dollar. So they just made free money basically for understanding how things work. Yeah, for sure. And can you talk a little bit about stable coins, I guess, and just kind of their... You know, we, we talk a lot about how Bitcoin offers banking to the unbanked, but 
you know, there, there's kind of that dynamic with, with stable coins as well. And can you just kind of expand on, you know, I think there, there's kind of the financial use case of people being able to just transact dollars and, you know, funds being able to, you know, arbitrage or whatever across exchanges quickly. There's that dynamic to it, but from like a more humanitarian perspective, how people have been able to utilize stable coins. Right. Um, actually, let's jump back really quick about the Tether FUD. Oh, sure. Uh, I, forgot to, yeah. I forgot to mention that. So sure. Tether FUD is almost as old as Tether. <laughs> Ever since Tether was created and launched, there's been Tether FUD and I've seen all of it. And it has, it, it mostly circles around like, where's your audit? And you're not very transparent. But these things are kind of straw man attacks because they're super transparent. They publish their attestations every quarter. Um, and some of the stable coins even go like weekly or something like that. But the, they're all publishing their attestations and they're, they should all have reserves because you have an external audit firm that's actually signing off and saying you have the assets. And I think it has to do with a misunderstanding of how things work. So an audit just means that some auditor has went from day one and traced the in and outflows of all funds till today. And then they said, yeah, audit's complete, everything is accounted for. And attestation is looking at the reserves they have and signing off and saying, this snapshot that I'm looking at today is accurate. And if you have a chain of attestations, it's almost as good as an audit. And I know that Tether is working on audit and probably all the other stable coins are as well, but no one has an audit yet because I believe there's a lot of complexity. If you're an auditor, you'll need to like run, like if you're a good auditor, you'll need to run a node for every chain that that stable coin is on and monitor all inflows and outflows and reconcile all of that. So it does take time and it is a new discipline for them. So that's why no one has an audit, but attestations, everyone has those. And I would say they're as reliable as an audit because there's a chain of attestations that go from years, from today to years back. And the other one is the, the, the yeah, what, what's the other FUD that's common? Um, they're, they don't have the money, right? But obviously the attestations show that they do have the money right. and Tether itself has shown that they are battle tested, right? The, um, there was a, when UST collapsed, there was a drawdown on USDT for 10 billion. So they processed 10 billion in withdrawals like, like that, right? And I don't even think a, a normal bank could handle that. Tether did. So it shows that they have all the money. And if you look at their attestations, they actually have more assets than liabilities. So they're over in terms of reserves. And then can we can we expand a bit on kind of the uh, last thing on stable coins? I just want to talk about the kind of the humanitarian side of the benefits of them right. aside from just like inner exchange arbitrage and those kinds of things. Yeah. So I think stable coins are very useful. And this is not often apparent to people living in the Western world that have you know banking they have an atm they can go there and withdraw money they can do a e-transfer or bank wire or you know they can send on venmo they, they have all these luxuries and they don't understand that a lot of the world doesn't have this they don't have a bank account and they probably will never have a bank account because they're they don't have a stable income or they don't have a, an address that they can use to you know, register with the bank and go through all the, the bank onboarding processes. And for them, having the access to um, a US dollar instrument on a public chain is invaluable because they can receive dollars just by having a phone and save dollars. They can exchange that for Bitcoin. They can do whatever they want. 
And it's just a, a massive boon for people to have this. And um, I think you were referring earlier to Senator Indira Kempis from Mexico. So she was saying there's a, a massive amount, like um, 60, 70% of people in Mexico are unbanked. And she believes that um, it's going to be Bitcoin and maybe stablecoins that actually bank them because they, they can get a phone, they can get internet connectivity and participate in the economy, but they'll never get a bank account. So that I think that is what you're alluding to, that uh, stablecoins are really, really useful as a utility for people in the developing world. Yeah, for sure. Hey, Samson, that, that's all the questions I got for today. Um, you know, I really appreciate you coming on and we, we got through a lot of ground here. Before we wrap up, I guess uh, in these, you know, unprecedented times of uncertainty, you know, and, and kind of global macro, geopolitical, I mean, you name it. Um, is there any kind of final, you know, words of wisdom you want to leave the listeners with being the, the Bitcoin OG that you are? Um, I'll just say the best thing to do is simply to hodl. There you go. That's a great way to wrap it up. Samson, thank you so much for the time, man. Thanks, Will. It's been great. See you.